Guys, good morning. We have, uh, these past couple of weeks, been looking at the basic fundamental question of why Jesus died, but looking at it through the lens more of history than through theology. And we looked at the role that the Romans had to play in it, and we looked at the role that the Jewish leaders had to play in it. But today we're going to look at it from a third angle. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to juxtapose two passages. I'm going to shove them side by side. That when you look at them side by side, don't seem to make any sense. Okay? Now, the first takes place on a day that has been labeled Palm Sunday. The first is recounting the story of that day when Jesus came into Jerusalem and listen to what happened. It says that the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. So they took palm branches and they went out and, and they went out to meet him and they started shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now Mark's gospel will say more. It will say that many people even spread their cloaks on the road while others took branches they had cut in the fields. And that those who went ahead and those who followed behind shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Have you ever tried to put yourself in that place? What did it must have been like in that crowd with Jerusalem electrified and Jesus walking in and people shouting their lungs out for him? Luke will even add this part where he says that the Pharisees sing this. They come up to Jesus and they're like, this lacks decorum. Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And what does Jesus say? If they were to keep quiet, even the stones would cry out because it was so electrified, so hot up. People were cheering to such a degree that it was unstoppable. Now, let me shove that set of passages up against this one that takes place just five days later. Mark will write this. Very early in the morning. Which morning? Well, five days later, the morning that we call Good Friday. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and they handed him over to the Roman governor, Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes. It is as you say, Jesus replied. And the chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate asked again, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things that they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and it says that Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the feast for the Roman governor to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with some other insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. 
And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did, to release one of their own, to release one of these in prison to them. So Pilate asked, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But key in on this and listen. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked, and they shouted, Crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. And wanting to satisfy, catch it, the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. How is it that this same crowd, five days earlier, can be like in this Elvis concert frenzy of throwing their clothes off at the stage and cheering out and swooning in the seats, and this is just the best thing ever, to five days later, shouting, crucify him. Because the passage is clear. Whatever culpability there is to go around, culpability with the Romans, culpability for the Jewish leaders, it was the crowds that Pilate finally bended to. And why was it? How could it be that in just a short period of time they can go from this and flip to this? Now, what I'd like to do is a a little experiment with you this morning. And uh, I'm just going to ask you to bear with me and, and just, just go with me on this because I think that Jesus got a bum rap. How about you? Okay, what I think we should do this morning is reverse the crowd. I think, despite the fact that he got a bum rap 2,000 years ago, today, let's reverse it. Let's 2,000 years later finally put it to right and reverse what happened back then. So here's what I want you to do. I want you, when I say Jesus and we begin, I want you to cheer for Jesus. I want you to cheer for Jesus like it is Palm Sunday. I want you to cheer for Jesus with every ounce of your gut and soul, and let's rectify what those crowds did to him back there. And I want you to do it for 10 seconds. Let it all out, and if you want to throw your clothes or go to the fields and cut palm branches as well, it is all in your hands, all right? So in three I'm going to count down and then cheer with everything you've got. Are you with me, right? For 10 seconds in three, two, one. All right, beautiful, guys, beautiful. Now, now, what I need you to do is dig deep. And what I need you to do is find all of that pent-up frustration, all of that latent anger, all of that sense of injustice that you face in your life and in this world, and I need you to harness it for 10 more seconds and boo. 
I need you to boo like no one has booed before. I need you to boo and I need you to hiss when I mention the name Barabbas. All right? Because here's some chump that took advantage of the situation. He got free despite the fact that he deserved to be condemned and just rolled with it, didn't he? So when I count three for 10 seconds, you need to boo and hiss like there's no tomorrow. Are you with me? All right? Ready? In three, two, one. That was beautiful, guys. That was beautiful. I was telling Mark after the first service, what we really need to do is we need to edit the audio recording of this message today so that all you see me is coming up at this moment and then your booze coming out. (laughs) Now, let's analyze what just happened. Did everyone in the room cheer or boo? It kind of seemed like it, didn't it? But I can tell you from my vantage point where I can see faces, not everyone did. Not everyone did. Now let me ask you this. Would you take a leap with me that a lot of people in this room probably cheered and booed simply because the people around them were cheering and booing, and it was fun and easy just to go along with it. Right? Right? You ever have those moments where something great is happening, and you're the only person, and you break out, and it's like, yeah! And they're like, no one else is doing anything, and you just shrink away. Right? Now, Would you also take a leap with me today that most people in the room at some fundamental level really didn't care what we did anyway? It's 20 seconds of your life, right? Cheer for 10 seconds, let's cheer. Boo for 10 seconds, let's boo. Who really cares? Because what difference does it fundamentally make? Are, are, Are you with me? And did you also notice that no one, not one soul in the crowd today stood defiantly against the boo, going, I don't know Barabbas. Why am I booing for a man I know nothing about except what one sentence in an ancient book tells me? Not one soul went against the crowd. Sure, there may have been some that inside felt differently. There may have been some here who didn't even participate. But no one took a stand against what we just did on either side of the equation. And it just strikes me that that's what it must have been like for the crowd in Jesus' day. Why did we do it? Because I asked you to. Because your religious leader asked you to do it. And because it's easy to go with the flow, to get caught up in the moment. And because at some level, if you don't really care, what difference does it make to begin with?
And I think about what it must have been like for Jesus standing there on that seat of trial back in Pilate's day. As Pilate is seeking in a way to bat for him, but it was the crowd that ultimately swayed him. Or can I rephrase it? The lack of other people in the crowd giving a defiant voice to give Pilate the resolve to do what was right in the end. See, I'm not surprised one bit that in five days the crowd flipped from here to there. Because I want you to imagine what it must have been like to have been in that crowd that day. Here you are told by your rabbi that going to pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover is one of the high point spiritual experiences that you will ever taste. And you have read all the travel books and you bought all the things online and it's telling you what an amazing experience this is going to be for you and fun for the whole family to go celebrate Passover in Jerusalem that day. And so you set out to travel and it's like something that makes National Lampoon's vacation look tame, right? Right? It's far. And you're traveling for days on foot in the sun and you're tired and you're sick of traveling and you just want to get there. The kids have been whining for three days straight and there is a smell in the car that you can't identify. And just because you're doing this trip doesn't mean all of your obligations at home take care of themselves. And your mind is still back there going, there's a thousand things I have to do at home and work keeps calling me and there's a thousand things I got to do there and when we get back, it's only going to be four times worse. Have you been there? And then you finally arrive and it's crowded. I mean, it's stupid crowded. It's like Great America on the 4th of July. And you're baking in the asphalt, and the sun is beating down on you at 95 degrees, and it's just standing in lines everywhere. And you're tired, and you're hot, and you're thirsty, and everything is overpriced. And any spiritual meaning, any joy that you were supposed to derive out of this for you and your family has long since left the building. And the reality is all you want to do is go back to the hotel. All you want to do is go home. And with this weary, semi-defeated endurance, you find yourself dragging yourself through the activities with five more days to go. Have you been there? And here you are. And now some trial for someone you don't like over someone you hardly know comes in the midst of it and makes the crowds worse and slows things down and gets in the way and sticks you there in traffic and you would do just about anything to expedite this process so you can get on your way and the one that you had cheered for five days earlier, pretty much because everyone else around you was just cheering for him too because you heard a couple of things. 
Now your religious leaders are mad beyond belief in him and telling you that he's a deceiver. And you're feeling mad because you're stuck in this because of this guy right here. And what lies did he fool those people with as well? How easy does it start to get to shout, crucify him, mainly because of the frustration of what you brought in. Flipping from Hosanna to crucify him in five days, I'm surprised it didn't happen in five seconds. About a year ago today, I remember when my daughter Reagan and I ditched school with one of her friends and head down for the Cubs rally. Remember this? Right after they won the World Series down at Grand Park, going down to the Cubs rally to be a part of the hype. Chicago was less than three million people. And the experts were saying that this was the seventh largest peacetime gathering of a non-religious nature in history, estimating anywhere from five to seven million people converging in the city. I remember almost making the decision knee-jerk because we heard about the excitement of the Cubs and going, we need to be a part of this. And last minute racing to our car and driving down from Hebron to catch a train in Crystal Lake at 7.30 a.m. and shoving onto the train and running from parking that was who the heck knows way out to try to get there because the lots of every mall were filled and taking the train ride down and people People were in clubs blue and the energy was hyped and people were happy and they were laughing and they were cheering and then you get off the train and the banner is there. It's coming down over Ogilvy and the masses and you can tell no one is here to work this day. Everyone is here for one singular purpose. To cheer for this team or get out of the way. And the masses of I would say hundreds, but that is so far from true. The tens of thousands walking down the main artery, streets closed, crowding up to Michigan Avenue, being so many rows deep that me at six foot three couldn't even see a thing that went by. And the parade was supposed to start at 11, and then we clicked by 12 and 12.30. And it was like one o'clock, if I'm remembering this right. And we're still sitting there on our feet, locked in place, waiting. And then it comes by. And there's no band. There's no fire trucks or flybys or police cars or military guards or any of the cool stuff that gets you in the mood. A car, a bus, literally drove by at 40 miles an hour. There it is. <laughs> and any chance of getting to Grand Park? Man, are you kidding me? They closed that off at 6 a.m. the night before for the people who camped out and clogged it that day. But, you know, I found myself there. I found myself loving it, cheering, wishing I owned something that was Cubs blue. I remember getting wrapped up in it despite the fact that putting playoff games aside, all season long I had not watched one single Cubs game. Now, Imagine if you were there 
and you were a part of it. And then you got into Grand Park, actually. And imagine if at this point, when the speeches are supposed to start and the celebration is supposed to begin, that the baseball commissioner gets up on the dais and he comes to the mic and he says to you, we're supposed to be here today to celebrate. But I hate to tell you this, Cubs fans, we've been investigating. And there's strong evidence to believe that the entire team has been doping. There's strong evidence to believe that there's bribes at play. And some of the umps have been paid off for some of the key games. We hate to tell you this, fans, but there's strong evidence to indicate that their bats were loaded. How quick do you think sentiment would change that day? You think people are, yeah, Cubs! Well, it's Chicago, so maybe. (laughs) But can you take a little bit of a leap with me here today and see how easily it could have gone another way? How the cheers of just moments before could switch to shouts of anger and boos and hisses in an instant. It doesn't matter that none of the facts presented were verifiable. Does it matter that it was based only on the word of one respected leader who cast some doubt into the event that day? None at all. And we know that because we've seen this again and again with celebrities, with politicians, maybe even with ourselves and other people close to us who have been accused in false ways and people just were swayed. No, it is no surprise to me that the crowds flipped from Hosanna to crucify him in just five days at the hands of very skilled, manipulative leaders. And I think it's easy for some of us to like to think that, you know, if we were there, man, if we were there, it would have went down differently. I wouldn't have gone along with that. I wouldn't have sat there and shouted, crucify him. Can I ask you just to self-check here today? Really? Now, I apologize so deeply for manipulating you 10 minutes ago. But not one of you here refused to boo for a man named Barabbas simply because I asked you to. And I got to be honest, I just know myself too well. I know my own track record in this. There have been times when I am proud of what I have done despite the masses in the crowd, but I can count up so many others when I just went along with them. I remember in high school, this freshman that I saw who was small and weak, 
And I was walking down the hall, and I saw this junior punk slamming him up against the locker, intimidating him and threatening him. And I had deep history with being on the receiving end of this stuff as well. And I was a senior. I outweighed this punk by 50 pounds, and I had six inches on him, and I could have destroyed him. And I walked away. I let it play. I, oh, I was angry inside, so that makes it okay, doesn't it? I had feelings. I cared. But did I do anything about it or just dissolve among the onlookers in the crowd? And in different ways, I have had so many other experiences since. How about you? How about you? Because, you know, it's in the times, isn't it, of stress and pain. When the integrity and character of who we are really gets tested. Doesn't it? But, you know, so much more, isn't it, in the times when everyone is going one way that it gets tested too? What are the ways that you sell out? that you betray, that despite what you feel inside, you just let things play they want to play rather than being the lone voice, standing the line, doing what's right against the fray. And that's why Jesus died. Because the crowds didn't. I got to believe there was friends of Jesus there. I got to believe there were those who didn't agree with what was going on. I've got to believe that in that crowd there was a mixed bag of people, but where were their voices? Where was their willingness to risk? Why didn't they stand the line? We know why. Because we don't either. And Jesus died because of them. But what's so amazing to me about the story of the Gospels is that there's this other layer underneath that we see that Jesus not only died because of them, but he died for them Two. Later, that same Good Friday, after they shouted, crucify him, Luke will recount this, where Jesus is now nailed to the cross and the character of his integrity is being tested as he faces stress and pain beyond belief. And it says that some of those in the crowd came by and they started jeering him while he was up there. And do you know what he says? Father, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, because Jesus may have died because of them, but he was there dying for them too. Father, forgive these people who just don't care. These people who are apathetic, these people who go along with whatever is hot and whatever is popular in the moment, forgive these people who have gotten caught up in the sway. Forgive these people, for they know not what they do, even despite the fact that they really do. 
And I want you to hear these same words today. Each of you here who is a sellout. Each of you here who is a betrayer. Each of you here who just doesn't care. Each of you who find it so much easier to just let things play the way they are and go through it with a certain sense of apathy or self-preservation. Hear what Jesus says to you, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her. Father, forgive you, whether or not you know what you do. Because that's the kind of person Jesus is. That's the kind of God he is. A God who forgives the tepid, lukewarm, go-with-the-flow, paying one ounce of devotion back for the thousands received, guilty of standing idly by. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it's that, I think, that causes us to try to live differently. I mean, there's this mistaken idea that people have that a relationship with God is based on me having devotion, me having faith, me having loyalty and commitment. But Jesus died for you despite your lack of these things. There's this mistaken idea that Christianity is about people who have gathered who find themselves above such frailties. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus died for people like these, and Christianity is about those who know it and see it in themselves and see who God is anyway. And this is why the Bible exhorts us on and encourages us to live differently, to live renewed because of this, this, this insane love Jesus has for you and me. I want to show you this verse. And this verse, you got to do it in the King James because it rocks so much. This is what it says. Gird up the loins of your mind. Isn't that not fantastic or what? Did you know that your mind had loins? Apparently it does. At least in 7th century, 17th century England it did. Gird up the loins of your mind. Or let me put it by an NIV-ism to make it a little bit more clear. Prepare your minds for action. It goes on, be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed. Because if we don't make a commitment to do what's right and fight against what's wrong when it's easy, in the times of stress and pain, it will be so easy to just go along with the crowd. It says, prepare your mind. Shore it up now. Set yourself and determine yourself. And it won't be easy when it comes, but at least you'll be ready. Think of the end game, it says. Set your hope on the grace to be given you when Jesus is revealed, not on what you'll have to face today. 
Think of what is coming tomorrow with him to get you through whatever life, stress, and pain comes at you today so that when you stand before him, it won't be as one of the crowd, but as one who can look him in the eye and smile. This is why Paul will write it this way. He'll say, be mature. Grow up, he says, spiritually with these things. Seek the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and attain the whole measure of fullness in Christ. Why? Because then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. And I wonder if as Paul wrote those words to that early church, if he had the cunning and the deceitful scheming of those religious leaders in mind at Jesus' crucifixion and what the crowds did because they weren't ready. Jesus died because of the Romans. He died because of the Jewish leaders. But you know, he died because of apathetic people too. Jesus died because of them. But even more important, he died for them too. And to me, that makes all the difference. So I'm going to invite the band to start coming forward. And as we've been doing these last couple of weeks, I want to invite you into a time of your own reflection and confession on the ways that you have been lukewarm, go with the flow. Selling out or even betraying God, his way, and what is right in your own life. So I invite you to rise. And let's not just look at them. Let's take a moment to look at us, to look each individually at me. Jesus is not scared off by your apathy. He is not scared off by the decisions you've made that flow from it, that you regret. In fact, much the opposite. He loves you the same and invites you to him all the more and says, give it to me. So you've been carrying it. This is a time to give it to him. If you're unaware of it, do a real soul search right now. And for these next few minutes, just pray on your own. And then after that, we'll pray together. Let's pray.
Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment, but for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Hear the words that Jesus spoke from the cross and that he speaks to us still. Father, forgive them. Insert your name. Would you, Father, forgive? Whether they know what they do or not.